0: You're listening to The Strong Towns Podcast.
1: Hey, everybody. This is Chuck Marone. Welcome back to The Strong Towns Podcast. We began building the interstate highway system many, many, many years ago. And the amazing thing about it is that we're done. We, we built the entire thing. We completed it. We had a plan. We went out and executed. And by the end of the 1960s, we had built something like 98% of it. And today there's a few remaining segments, but the vast majority of it was built out over 50 years ago. Yet we continue to build and to build and to build and to build seemingly without end. Every year, There's a report put out over the last seven years, at least, by the U.S. Public Interest Research Group Education Fund, cooperatively with the Frontier Group, called Highway Boondoggles. We're on Highway Boondoggle 7 now, wasting infrastructure funding on damaging and unnecessary road projects. And I've asked Tony Dutzig, who is the Associate Director and Senior Policy Analyst at Frontier Group, to join me to chat about their latest report. Tony, welcome back to the Strong Towns podcast.
0: Thanks, Chuck. Thanks
1: for having me. I think the amazing thing about this is not that I'm getting bored with it. Um, there's something almost like sadly predictable about this idea that we're going to be back next year talking about another list of highway boondoggles. I'm grateful that you guys do this work, and I'm grateful that it emerges from your conversation. But just give me the overall vibe of is there ever a conversation where you're like, all right, guys, what what are we what are we what are we doing? Here? <laughs>
0: <laughs> what are we, what are we doing this year?
1: Yeah. Or is it gonna well, be like, any
0: different than last year?
1: Yeah. Well, there's always more stuff, right? But it is one of these things where, like, are we going to be in the year, you know, 21, 22 doing 170th highway boondoggle <laughs> report. It feels like we might be, right?
0: Right. Well, you know, the way that I look at it is, you know, it's like every, you know, if you have children, you know, every one of your children is is unique and special, right? And I think in one way, the story is the same, which is that uh, state governments largely continue to spend vast amounts of money expanding highways with very little very little benefit or value in solving the problems that they're actually attempting to solve. On the other hand, though, I think the stories subtly subtly change from year to year. So when we started this report series back in 2014, we were at a time when very few people were really talking about this issue as a national issue. There was very little sense. I mean, you and Strong Towns, had been talking about this. Congress for New Urbanism with Freeways Without Futures had been talking about it. But there wasn't really a lot of national awareness or conversation about the costs of highway expansion and the impacts of highway expansion.
1: I remember you and I having these early chats and feeling very outside the, the mainstream. It's exactly. Very true. Yeah. Yeah.
0: Yeah. You know, and now this is a you know, highway expansion is there was a st- recent story that was run on NBC news about the work at the freeway fighters network and about, you know, expansion projects in in major cities. So it feels like on once in one sense, awareness of the issue and the concern and the problems with these projects has increased The other things that I think are kind of new or different, maybe three things that are new and different. One of them is that the infrastructure bill passed last year. So all of a sudden, you know, states are having to come to grips with, okay, we have this money now, what are we going to do with it? Which I think raises the urgency of having some of these conversations about wasteful and damaging highway projects. The other thing that's changed is that state departments of transportation the highway lobby have evolved in their response and in how they how they pitch and package projects for the public to respond but yet not respond to many of the concerns that have been raised over the over the past number of years so you know you now have this kind of growing awareness or this unearthing of the historical memory of The disruption and displacement that occurred with the construction of urban interstate highways to begin with in the 50s and 60s. You know, now you have state DOTs that are, you know, promoting highway caps and other sort of ways to strategies through building more to try to limit or lessen or paper over the impact of some of these projects on local communities. The other thing that you see, which has been interesting, is greenwashing or bike washing or walk washing of projects where a few years ago, I went to a conference and there was a poster there from the consultant who was working on a highway project in Texas. And to look at this poster, this public engagement poster, you know, you would have thought that they were building a national park, you know, there were birds (laughs) and butterflies and (laughs) raccoons and trees, and they were building a highway expansion project. And You know, I think that the highway lobby has gotten more sophisticated in how it talks about these projects. And there are a couple in this year's report that speak to that. The other thing that I think has changed a little bit that we're seeing in the last few years is that cities are now having real conversations about what they want to do with their legacy highway project investments. So one of the projects that we talk about in this year's report is uh, the future fate of I-35 in Duluth you know, which is a highway that never did what it was intended to do, is a major barrier within the city, you know, is clearly not not really necessary to fulfill the functions that it was originally designed to fulfill. But because of the approach to that project and the approach that we have to legacy infrastructure, there's a real risk of reinvesting money in perpetuating mistakes and improving them, but m- perpetuating mistakes that we we never should have made to begin with. So that is a dynamic that I think is popping up in a few other cities. So yeah, I mean, I think on the whole and on average, the story remains much the same, but then I, I do think the conversation has evolved in a few ways from when we started doing this work in 2014 to now.
1: Can we talk a little bit about the highway bill? Because I, I had this conversation with Beth Osborne and I found it very refreshing. I had this tension because I know Mayor Pete. I don't know Secretary Pete. They seem like the same person in many ways, but also, you know, in a different role. Sometimes some different people, right? And when you brought up the idea of greenwashing and bike washing and walk washing, it does feel to me, and and I would add equity, sustainability. There's a whole rubric of words that we use. I would add those to to the mix as well. Um, How much of this, I guess the tension that I see is that the administration seems like they have a lot of intentions about changing things. And the states, for a large part, seem very intent on not changing things. And Congress kind of sits there in the middle. Chart me a path where this current bill creates some level of positive change. I did not want it to pass. I was I wrote a whole bunch of stuff about why we shouldn't do this. I'm I'm more on the extreme side of I want to change things before we fund things. Give me the best case that funding things will lead to changing things, not necessarily even that you believe it fully, but that maybe it's possible we can get there, right?
0: Yeah. well, let me give you two scenarios. So one which I think is the is the legitimate scenario, which I mean, not legitimate. It is the scenario that I think is is actually likely to happen is that in the short run, you have a US Department of Transportation that now has a range of discretionary grants opportunities available to it to begin putting resources into projects that otherwise would not get... Attention or love through state DOTs and the traditional transportation planning process. You know, one of the one of the interesting things that, you know, I noted early on about the DOT's approach and you know and their rhetoric is this desire to work more directly with cities and more directly with local jurisdictions. And obviously there are ways in which that money can be misused or misdirected or funded for the wrong things, but I think the the plausible the plausible pathway that, you know, that I see is that for those discretionary grant programs, there there is both there are both resources and there's both and there is an opportunity to work you know more directly with with people who are likely to make better decisions. The other maybe less plausible pathway, but one that I think we're actually starting to see happen in a couple of states across the country is where states do start to have a bit of a moment of reckoning within their transportation planning process to say, wait a minute, actually, the way that we have been doing things is counter to our broader goals. So in Colorado, for example, you recently had uh, the state's cancel a couple of highway expansion projects, including, incidentally, one that we were planning to highlight in this oh, most nice. recent highway boondoggle report: the I-25 expansion project through, through downtown Denver. And the state canceled it, and they canceled a, a project to expand the beltway around Denver. Uh, and they did it explicitly for climate reasons. So this idea that we're a state that has a lot to lose from climate change. We're a state that has invested a lot, and set bold goals around climate. We're making these investments that are counterproductive to those goals. So we need to find some other way to do to serve the needs that we're trying to serve. Um, this has happened a little bit in California as well. Although I think you know, there's there's a lot of a lot of momentum in history around freeway building in California that I think hasn't been fully reckoned with yet. But but you're starting to see these conversations, and some of it has been around climate, and some of it has been around equity, and some of it has been around, you know, the removal, so the reconnecting communities and removal of freeways that have been, you know, have a hist- history and legacy of damaging cities and urban communities. You're starting to see those conversations pop up more, I think, in a real and genuine way. Does that necessarily mean that The majority of the funding that is going to be sent out to states is going to be governed by those kinds of concerns no i don't think it is i mean there's still tremendous momentum behind highway expansion in states all across the country but i think that you're starting to see conversations happening in a real way that could you know maybe by the time that we're writing highway boondoggles 137 or whatever the case may be (laughs) uh you know that could actually lead you know, to all this work and all this planning and all this effort happening in in a less destructive way.
1: I'm going to give you a proposition that is going to sound very like fiscal hawkish, maybe even more so than I I am. But I'm going to lay this out because I want you to respond to it. There's a certain, I think, recognition in financial markets that when the government has an implicit backstop on something, you get crazy investments, right? So when it feels like the government is going to backstop housing mortgages, all of a sudden housing mortgage market becomes a casino, right? And for the last, we can go back however many years, five years, 10 years, maybe the pandemic, it has felt like the federal government will backstop or the Federal Reserve will backstop a bunch of things. And we can see that a lot of the markets have been turned into casino-esque kind of investment strategies, with people saying, well, we can't, we, we will never be allowed to fail because we're we're systematically too important. I get that same vibe from departments of transportation when they put out these reports that say, you know, our annual spending is $5 billion, our backlog is $80 billion. We're going to build more highways, but we're just going to ask for more money from the federal government because the unspoken part is if we don't get it, everything will fall apart. Ergo, we're just going to plan on that we will ultimately get it. It, it seems like these bipartisan infrastructure bills can never catch up to that if we want to call it from a market standpoint, moral hazard that they create—I hate to use that word—but I, th- I think you get where I'm going with it. How much of this is, you know, the the left hand and the right hand fighting against each other in a sense? We we fund 1.2 trillion dollars, and and four fifths of it is going to go to stuff that really should never happen. One fifth of it might be the the sugar that. Helps the medicine go down and maybe gets us nudged in a little mm-hmm. bit one direction. Mm-hmm. What is your take on that tension between? Well, let me give you the the end agenda. The argument that we made during the the whole debate was that we should we should not fund this. We should actually go. Um, I think it was Mike Lee, the senator from Utah, who said, "Let's we built the interstate highways and we're done. Let's just end this whole program." There was no no support for that. Like, I think one Senator signed on and like nobody in the house, like the, nobody said that. Would that be bad? And, you know, uh, I'm asking you maybe to, to to talk about something beyond what the report was, but like, I guess the, the the tension that I have is like, will we ever get to something where we don't have a continuous funding of these legacy boondoggle type of projects? Or is it going to have to come from states reforming themselves? And, and, and if it's states reforming themselves, it seems like the, the federal government is the pusher of the drug that keeps them from reaching rock bottom and reforming themselves, right?
0: You're right. <laughs> I don't think you're wrong, necessarily. I mean, when I, you know, when I encountered the, the Mike Lee proposal... I was kind of like, oh, well, that's an interesting idea. You know, we should be thinking about that. You know, I think where we have lost the thread to some degree is on defining what's in the national interest in transportation funding. You know, I mean, we started funding federal aid highways in 1916 and, you know, made a huge leap in our commitment with the interstate highway system, there was a clear, there was a clear national interest that was articulated for building out a national network of interstate highways. It was implemented in ways that were not always in either the regional or the national interest, but, but there was clearly a processing of this is important to us as a country. And as a result of that, it makes sense for us to pool our resources at the federal level to get it done.
1: It seemed like, connecting minneapolis to chicago was a national thing right right yeah Yeah. but but maybe connecting like the third ring suburb of minneapolis to downtown minneapolis with a fourth lane is not in the national
0: right it's a harder case to make right yeah and you know what's happened you know you mentioned at the top that the interstate highway system is done we built it it's over what's happened over the last 30 years is that there's been, you know, this scope creep at the federal level in terms of highway funding. So you have more and more roads and more and more bridges that are part of the national highway system that, you know, are eligible for federal funding. And you've also had scope creep in how we fund these things because the original bargain with the interstate highway system was that we're going to pay for it at the federal level and drivers people who drive are going to pay the cost of that we are going to charge a federal gas tax we're going to take that money we're going to use it to fund the interstate highway system and then the implicit promise at the end of that being and when that's done it's done now that other part of the bargain is also broken which is that the federal government has not increased the gas tax since 1993 and we've continued to pour more and more and more money from general funds into this project of you know essentially helping states to both build out or fix their their highway systems. And that's bad. <laughs> it's bad because yeah, the way that we've put it it, it. feels
1: very bread and circus like, right? Like uh, it, yeah
0: it, yeah I mean we, we pour we pour money into a highway trust fund. You know it would be one thing if we had and, and my colleague, James Horracks had, had written a paper about a different vision for highway finance back earlier this year. But, you know, it would be one thing if we were debating in Congress, it makes sense for us to fund the reconstruction of I-35 in Duluth. It's another thing for us to take general funds, throw them into a big pot, which is dedicated, you know, with very constrained set of uses and distributed to the states, that's not sort of guided by any of those conversations about national interests. So, you know, to me, I hear where you're coming from. And, you know, I think we do need to have this deeper conversation about what is it actually that we're doing here, you know, and whether for a variety of reasons, and I think people have people in the transportation reform world who see this problem have different different ideas about when when and where are the right places for us to have the conversation but we've clearly gotten to a point that is not financially wise it's not financially sustainable and you know and i think having having states i think we need to reform it at the state level regardless because if the federal government ceases to provide transportation funding to the states then the states are going to have to figure out how to raise money which will both increase their accountability, but. Until we can figure out how to move states to having a more sensible version of vision for transportation finance, I think we wind up just sort of replicating the same conversations that we're having now in that new atmosphere. So I do think, as long as the states are where the locus of decision making is, that is the place where we need to be having a lot of these fights and.
1: Yeah, decisions. these debates. There seems to and and this was true with the 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 tiger grants of decades ago. It seems true with the raise grants today. the idea that we could bypass states and go directly to cities and get in a sense a, a better suite of projects. I feel like in general that's true. We have pointed out a number of raise projects that I think will make your make people a little bit uptight because it's not universally true, obviously, right? It does seem like in our system of government, that is, I don't want to call it like a vanity project, but it's like, you know, it it structurally goes against how we're set up to make decisions. Cities are, are subsets of states in our system and states are given a lot of power. So is the hope there that we like encourage a lot of local cities to demand different things from states and then states will reform? Is this like just pushing in two different directions? Is that kind of the idea?
0: Well, I think the reality is that in in many parts of the country, transit walkability, bikeability projects are unfundable from state coffers. So let's say that you're I don't want to single out a particular state, but let's say that you're the mayor no, of
1: we, we can talk Minnesota, where I know very yeah. well, which is a very, you know, it's it's a politically very blue state. It's a very progressive state. And we have funded a number of transit projects, major transit projects in the Minneapolis-St. Paul area. Everybody up where I live thinks that these are horrible and you know that they're taxing the rural areas to fund transit for the urban areas. And it just creates this whole deep tension where in order to have that tension subside, the urban areas have to vote for ridiculous amounts of very dumb projects up in my part of the world in order to get their transit project, right?
0: Yeah, there's like there's no shortage of dumb projects, right? I mean, there's, right. there's dumb r- rural projects, there's questionable urban yes. projects. There's a lot of those. In many states, and I forget the exact number now, but it's more than 20, it is illegal, constitutionally banned, to spend gas tax revenue on anything other than highways and bridges. In states like Ohio, to name one, the amount of state funding for public transportation is a rounding error. Transit, biking, walking, not generally thought of as being part of state government's job at all. The Department of Transportation is called the Department of Transportation. It could be called the Highway Bureau, and it would be basically, you know, it's very little has actually changed from conceptually from what we developed in the 50s, 60s, 70s. So in those places federal funding, whether it's transit formula funding, whether it's grants for specific transit projects is, you know, functionally the only way other than possibly with the local option tax levy is the only way that those things are ever going to actually happen or be sustained. So I am sympathetic to the idea and on most days, you know, agree with the idea that the access to, you know, what is essentially proven to be an almost unlimited pot of federal funding leads states and cities in some ways to adopt projects that are maybe not necessarily at all wise. I think the thing that I find most challenging is that there are there are many places in the country where the absence of federal transportation funding also means, that a lot of things that people actually really do depend on cease to exist.
1: Yeah. It's this tension. And I see it over and over again this idea that if the federal funding went away, so much of what we depend on could not be maintained. And it wouldn't be maintained because the state wouldn't raise the money or couldn't raise the money. The local government couldn't raise the money. Yet the more federal money there is, the more we do stuff that makes that problem worse. And so there, there's this tension between the present case which is, you know, I think an extremist would say, well, bite the bullet and go through the hardship now, because it's just going to be a harder hardship sometime in the future. And like, there's a part of me that gets that. I also get the impracticality of that. The projects that you have in the boondoggle this year feel very like the projects that were in, you know, last year, in the sense that like I-35 reconstruction in Duluth, I get why this project needs to happen. Like I'm looking at it, and I understand. I also think that if if they didn't have the money to do it from the federal government, they would do something really horrible. If they do have the money from the federal government, they're going to do something slightly less horrible. But there's a third option that would be really, really great <laughs> that nobody will fund. Like it's not fundable at any, at any level in any channel. So how do you get to that third option which I'm I'm not going to say like that's the smart thing to do or like the intelligent thing to do but if I35 if I35 was th- 4 miles shorter of an interstate highway than it is now the functioning of I35 would be amazing for the other however many hundreds of miles of it that there is it would be 4 miles shorter and the 4 miles that run through Duluth to the highway that goes up the North Shore Could be done in a way that was really nice to Duluth.
0: Yeah. At much less cost, right? Right. This is the challenge that, you know, we deal with, right? Is how do you how do you simultaneously change what has been a century of practice in transportation funding and arguably nearly a century of sort of embedded ideas and concepts and get folks to think about the possibilities in a broader and different way. You know, and I think that the work that Strong Towns does helps us to do that because you need to be able to articulate and envision and talk about a a different way of seeing the problem. And so, you know, one solution that I would say is we need more organizations like Strong Towns and people who are you know, who are raising these kinds of fundamental questions, because we tried to do a bit of this in in this transportation finance paper that I mentioned called Shifting Gears to basically argue, you know, listen, if we're going to be raising this money, like we shouldn't be dedicating it all to transportation necessarily. Like what we need to do is to move away from the system to raise money where it makes sense and to spend it on things that are beneficial because we've created a whole infrastructure that forces decisions in ways that are not necessarily productive functionally how do you do that it's hard but i think the primary the first thing that needs to happen is for people to recognize that there is an alternative that we don't have to do it this way there was a great paper that was done a number of years ago by the eno transportation institution which looked at countries around the world and how they fund transportation and as it turns out none of them fund transportation the way that we do you know they all raise money from gas taxes and they all spend it out of the general budget on things that make sense and until folks can kind of recognize and see a different alternative and it's hard to then get to the next question of okay how do we then make that happen
1: can we talk here about denver a little bit just cuz i mean you br- you brought them up earlier and i do feel like this is the for better or for worse i mean i i feel like the lesson of Denver is that you have to be heroic, <laughs> you know, like, like it, we need a lot of local people pushing on the same thing for a long period of time and be very brave and heroic. I wish that the path to success was not so difficult, but are there lessons we can learn from what has happened in Denver and and what would those lessons
0: be? That's actually really, really good question. And I think people who are closer to Denver. Well, why don't we talk a yeah. little bit about
1: what they, what they
0: did? Yeah. yeah. What they've done, the most concrete thing that they've done most recently is to alter their 10 year transportation plan to remove, you know, essentially to organize, begin to organize and reorganize their thinking about transportation around climate. I would say a lot of what Colorado has committed to doing is still very tentative. So they what is notable about it is two things. One is their stated intention to do that. And then two, they're backing it up by removing specific projects from that plan and going back to the drawing board on how they'll serve transportation needs without them. Um, There has been a lot of work done by a lot of people in, in Denver and in Colorado to raise questions about the sustainability of their historical mode of transportation build out. In an era of climate change, but also just in general, I mean, Denver, one of the things that I think is important in that we try to do in highway boondoggles is not every city is the same. Denver is a rapidly growing metropolis of people who are almost by definition, like you talk to anybody who moves to Denver, the reason that they move to Denver is because of the outdoors. So there's this sort of built in challenge and conflict between the reason that people go there to begin with and the effects of people going there to begin with if the thing that they're going to be doing is traveling by car all the time. So I think you have an administration and the Polis administration, you have a set of advocates in Colorado, you have the people that he has uh, appointed to run the transportation agency and the energy agency, you know, who have finally kind of said have surfaced that tension in a real way and called upon folks to you know to begin to grapple with what it actually means. I mean, in terms of what other parts of the country can learn from it, you know, one leadership matters and elections matter, and you know you you want to have folks who are who are able and and open to these conversations. But then, you know there's a level of just folks in the advocacy community and and others just saying, What's the plan here? You know, we, And calling for and demanding real solutions that are not just, you know, because one thing that that frustrates me as somebody who has worked on issues related to climate change for decades at this point is that we have projects in the highway boondoggles report this year, you know, New Jersey conversation about expanding, widening the entire width of the New Jersey Turnpike and a large part of the Garden State Parkway in a state that is ostensibly that sees itself as being a climate leader. You know, we have Oregon similarly, you know, these places where there's much as there's a disconnect between where the money is coming from federally and what it's actually happening, a disconnect between what we aspire to do As a state and it doesn't have to be climate change it can be it can be fiscal responsibility it can be equity it can be any of these things but this disconnect between what we aspire to do as a state and what we're actually doing where our money is actually going where our investments are actually going and i think the lesson in in colorado and to a lesser extent though i think it's still very tentative in california is you know people are calling calling governments bluff essentially and saying. Okay, if you if you believe this, if you aspire to this, how does this infrastructure investment actually advance it, or does it set it back? And those are hard conversations because we just have not done a really good job of critiquing highway expansion and an extension in those terms. You know, it was sort of generally considered to be a good thing. And you know, one of the things that we were hoping to do when we started Highway Boondoggles eight years ago was to create a forum by which people could raise questions and objections, whether you're a climate person, whether you're a person who cares about fiscal responsibility, whether you're a person who cares about the thousand homes that are going to get knocked down in Austin in order to widen I-35, whatever those things might be, you know, to create a a forum and a venue where those kinds of critiques could actually be voiced. So I realize that's a rambling answer to your
1: question. No, no, it was really good. It does feel like there's some hope and this is going to be a little bit perverse, but there's some hope in the in to me in the idea or the insight. And this comes directly out of the projects that you highlight that the low-hanging fruit is all done. Like everything left is going to feel boondoggle-esque because of the price tag. And I, I think about Denver and just blasting through rock on a you know to add another lane of of highway you know they have some of the highest per mile you know construction costs in the country and not because they have poorly run DOTs but because their geography is just really expensive to build on it does seem to me like the report continues to point out the massive scale of these projects and how disproportionate these projects are to the actual like backlog needs of the state i mean when you when you have a state like minnesota that has you know a, a 30 billion dollar backlog of road maintenance and then you have one project that is you know uh, half of that you're like okay well wait a sec we could fix half of our roads or do this project i mean maybe i'm being wishful thinking here but but how much is the fact that all of this stuff is ridiculously expensive is that going to do you think factor in at some point at the state level where we can't print our own money and we can't borrow endlessly and And the federal government maybe can be a partner, but not the endless partner, right?
0: Yeah. Well, I think it already has in some places. So it feels like it has a little bit. Yeah. So in in twenty fourteen, one of the projects I believe that one of the first projects that we talked about was the widening of I ninety four through Milwaukee, and the groups that we worked with on that project. It was a, a diverse and very lively coalition. But one of the things that they did was to talk to the mayors in Appleton. And I I seem to recall Eau Claire, I'm going to mix up the names of the cities, but, you know, but to talk to people in, in rural and small cities and say, what are the needs that you all have? You know, how many, how many miles of streets do you have that are potholed? You know, what are the needs that you have in your community that are not going to be solved because we're pouring a billion dollars into the Spoondoggle project. And, you know, Scott Walker eventually pulled the plug on that project. I mean, you know, I Scott Walker and I probably don't agree about most things, but not exactly an anti-highway guy, right? Not exactly yeah. it, it, it the opposite. But he pulled the plug on that project, I think, in large part out of fiscal concerns and out of concerns that, you know, the constituencies that he cared about, you know, we were finally those two those 2 issues, the amount of money that we were spending on highway expansion and the amount of money that was not being spent on meeting these local needs were connected in a way that they hadn't been connected before. You know, I do think that that is starting to happen at the state level. I think there's a danger that with the infrastructure money coming that that, that point of decision is passed off, that if you have money to do More things in general that it becomes harder to understand those trade offs. But, you know, I think a day of reckoning still is coming for for many states. And especially as these projects continue to get more expensive, and they do, because to be able to sell a highway project now, especially one that is going to be controversial, there's a lot of other, you know, you've got to fund the parks and the highway cam- and all of these things that are you that, really you know, got
1: to greenwash it now you really have to You it's a it's a green sauna spa experience you have to do you can't just wash up you have to actually go through a whole cleansing process yeah, right know.
0: so all of these things just become you know it, it bigger and less sustainable fiscally so i i do think i to your point i do think that that is starting to happen i think it will probably continue to happen more but it's up to it's up to folks like you and folks like us and folks like the the many, you know, and, and my favorite thing about doing this project every year is the local folks who who see this like they actually see it. I worked on the the case study for the Erie Bayfront Parkway and just like talking to the folks in Erie about what they want, what they care about and how, you know, the project doesn't, you know, like those are the folks who I think are are doing this work in real time in a very real way. And it's exciting to me to see more of those kinds of organizations inspired by strong towns, inspired by, you know, others, you know, popping up and, you know, it's going to, it's not going to happen overnight, but I think that that is how we wind up getting to a better place and hopefully aren't having this conversation, you know, aren't publishing highway boondoggles. Like,
1: <laughs> so let's aspire to not have to publish highway boondoggles. What should we say? 20, 15,
0: 15. Okay. That seems like a goal. I mean, I would love to not get to 10, personally. Not to get to 10. Um, it would be awesome. Yeah. I, I, I wish it, I wish that it was getting harder to find projects that could, we could add in this report. I think it's,
1: 10 it's would mean some type of financial apocalypse has happened. But 20 might be reasonable from a policy standpoint, <laughs> right? Which is really okay. kind of sad because we're getting, you and I are not the youngest people anymore. <laughs>
0: <laughs> yeah well you're not going to get me signing on for financial apocalypse Chuck so I'm... no right that's what I'm saying like
1: 10 we 10 we might be wishing for something we had we wish we hadn't wished for right,
0: right. okay fair enough um,
1: okay you and I are our pals and uh it's been great getting to know you through this work. what are some of the other stuff you guys are working on at Frontier group? I follow you on Twitter. I think people should follow you on Twitter. I follow you in other places too. We wind up chatting every now and then. Yeah, People don't know, but we are like an hour behind schedule because we chatted for 45 <laughs> minutes before we started. <laughs> Tell people what you're working on and where they can get a hold of you.
0: Okay. Well, you can get a hold of us. Our website is www.frontiergroup.org. My Twitter handle is Frontier Tony, which sounds a lot more adventurous than I actually am. <laughs> <laughs> It's been a long time since
1: covered wagon going across (laughs) the Great Plains.
0: Yeah, (laughs) and some of the things that we're we've been working on, we're actually finishing up a report uh, which has been fascinating. Working on looking at the potential benefits of a transition to electric vehicles among uh, municipal fleets in the state of Arizona, where you know this is a place where federal funding is actually significantly moving the needle on what. The decisions that cities make in terms of the kinds of vehicles that they're going to invest in going forward. So we're doing that work. Uh, we've been doing a lot of work on, as I mentioned, I'm a long time climate guy. So looking at the the progress of renewable energy and clean energy around the country, which you know is fascinating to me because when I started work on that issue, it was a very few states in the country who were taking leadership and in it. it's increasingly becoming a 50 state story of you know states learning how to to adapt clean energy technologies into their into their communities. So we've been doing that work. and you know, I think it, we're going to be spending a lot more time in the next couple of months looking at some of the fallout from the inflation reduction act from the infrastructure bill, both the positive positive opportunities that they raise and also some of the some of the challenges because I think neither of those, pieces of legislation were perfect. And, you know, it's the federal conversation I think has done on those. And now it's going to be up to states and localities and individual people to determine whether, you know, whether those turn out to be a net success and how much of a net success or, you know, or create new problems that we need to solve. So we're be spending a little bit more time on that in the months to come.
1: Are you optimistic, Tony?
0: About what, Chuck? Just in general. <laughs> In, it's In it's interesting
1: i read i read some stuff about the climate funding you know it's all over the board from this is a this is not going to be that impactful to this will be utterly transformative and i don't really i mean i don't have a sense and maybe what you're saying is that it's going to depend on what yeah. people do with it now but it opens
0: it opens doors okay i would say if we can walk through the doors that are being opened, it has the potential, I think in some very real ways, it will be transformative because for, for anybody who was thinking about, am I going to invest in an electric vehicle? Am I going to change the heating system in my house? Am I going to do all of these kind of nitty gritty things that are, you know, as somebody who puts off home projects as long as I possibly can, (laughs) like are going to be real benefits that I think people are going to see and be able to act on. So in all those ways, I think it actually does have the potential to be transformative in a lot of people's lives. But, you know, the bill was a compromise. And there are some approaches to the problem that I'm less excited about. There are some approaches to the problem that I do think raise the possibility of spending a lot of money to not achieve a lot of good. It's a big and complex piece of legislation that people are actually just still trying to wrap their heads around what it even what it even means. So, I am hopeful, I guess cautiously. You ask me if I'm optimistic and I'm trying to remember the quote about the difference between optimism and hope. I am cautiously hopeful that this will make a difference, but it's also not nearly it's just the beginning and there's a lot more that we need to do and there are a lot of questions that are still very much open about how we're going to go about actually using this to hopefully make a positive difference.
1: Yeah. Well, friend, keep me in the loop. And if there's anything more we can have you on to chat about, I would love to do that. It's so easy to talk to you. So um, anytime. well.
0: Well, it's always a pleasure. And thanks again for the invite.
1: Yeah. Thanks, Tony. And thanks All everybody right. for listening. Keep doing what you can to build strong towns. Take care. know that America's one big pothole right now. Bill
0: Bill, Bill, Bill. That's the story Chuck Morone this has been fascinating.
1: Oh today
0: I like you. I like your vision of the of the world.